Good morning, Wellspring family. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent already. Oh my goodness, can you believe that it's not even a week until Christmas Eve? I don't know if you're ready, but um, here we go. We're in our series, Generation From Generation to Generation. And this week, we get to pick up the story that turns back to see what Mary is up to. Last Sunday, Pastor Cheryl walked us through what Joseph's experience was like. Um, And this week, we're going to go back to Mary in Luke chapter 1. But before we do that, I'm a little curious about one thing. And that is this word that will come up in our message today. You may have heard of it before, but I'm not sure if it's a word that gets used that much. And that word is magnificat. Has anyone heard of that before? The magnificat? Sounds kind of weird. Uh, keep your hand up if you actually know what it is. <laughs> or you just heard the word. Kind of. Okay. I'm impressed. That, that's, that's a lot of hands, actually. Um, you can put your hands down. The Magnificat is actually just the Latin name for Mary's song, because in Latin, the song that she sings in Luke chapter 1 begins with that word, Magnificat, because it means glorifies, as in my soul glorifies the Lord. And it's actually the longest section of spoken word by any woman in the New Testament. Something like 130 consecutive words in our English texts. But before we go deeper into what this Magnificat is, I want to tell you a couple things that the Magnificat is not. So first we'll do two things that it's not, and then we'll talk about what it is. This is where I get to test out my clicker. The first thing, um, oh yes, this is our title, Cousins, Cats, and Game-Winning Goals. First thing that the Magnificat is not is a cat. Now, I know it ends in C-A-T, but it's not like shorthand for magnificent cat or something like that. Uh, It doesn't refer to any four-legged furry friends, even if they're dressed in their best Christmas garb, like our own cat, Squeaky, there. Um, So, uh, Squeaky, if you're watching online, this is not about you. Um, You might think the Magnificat is about a cat, but it's really not. Sorry about that. I turned my phone off, but somebody's actually calling me right now. Oh my goodness, it's it's Squeaky. She is watching. (laughs) What? No, no, no. Well, I I just had to pick a picture, and I figured it was a Christmas one. Oh, you don't like this photo. It's not very flattering. Okay. So you want something that makes you look better? Okay. Um, Let's see. I think I have another one here that that might look better. See? This one, you're you're furry looking. you're, You're peacefully resting. There's even a nativity set behind you, which is perfect for Advent. You don't like this one, Squeaky? What's wrong with it? Oh, I see. You, you want something that makes you look more fierce and strong. Okay, I understand. You want to be fierce and strong. You want to have your authority. Okay, let's try one more. There you go. Surely, Squeaky, you must like this one because you're right on top of me and you've got all the power, which is what you want, right? No, it's not what you want. Okay, Squeaky, I've, I've already showed three pictures of you to the whole congregation, and we need to get back to what the Magnificat is about. I'm sorry, 
Sorry, Squeaky. Bye. Sorry. Sorry. Bye. Catch up with you later. Catch up with you later. Perfect. Per perfect. Okay, so we have cleared up what one thing is that the that the Magnificat is not. There is a second thing that the Magnificat. I gotta really turn off my phone now. There's another thing that the Magnificat is not, and that is it's not what Mary does right after the angel Gabriel leaves her. Sometimes we think of this song that way. At least I used to. I thought the story went something like, "Well." Mary's there at home in Nazareth, which she was, and the angel Gabriel comes and, you know, shows up, which he does, and he's got this big news and tells her what's going to happen, how this plan is going to unfold, and then Mary says, yes, I consent to be part of this. May it be as you have said, and the angel leaves, and Mary is back alone at home, and she bursts into song. Oh, no. That's actually not what happens after Gabriel leaves. In fact, when Mary sings this song, she's not even in Nazareth. She's not at home, and she's not with any angels. Where is she? And what actually happens to Mary that carries us in between the visit from Gabriel and this song that she sings? Well, Mary does not sing after singing. Mary does not sing after seeing an angel. She sings after seeing a human being. She sings after encountering Elizabeth, her cousin, who is also pregnant, and they connect as created people in God's image, who are not only pregnant women, but they have this. Incredible potential through their offspring to be part of God's plan. Of course, Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist, and Mary is carrying Jesus. That's why Mary sings, because she connected with another human being. So, Mary did not sing because she died and went to heaven, but because she lived. And met humanity, touched humanity, and because Elizabeth could see Mary and the image of God in her, Mary could see the image of God in Elizabeth. Now, some scholars estimate that it was actually quite a distance between their two homes. We're not exactly sure, but if you look at where Nazareth is in Galilee, it's kind of a rough part of town, and then. The hill country of Judea, where Elizabeth and Zechariah live, you know, he's a priest. It's closer to Jerusalem. Not only is it something like seventy miles or more away, it's also an elevation gain of something like thirteen hundred feet. So we don't know if she travels there alone or with Joseph. That doesn't seem critical to what Luke is trying to to share with us. But we do know that as Mary is going uphill on this journey. Imagine what she must have felt, wondering what Elizabeth would say, how Elizabeth would respond. Would it be worth the trip to see her cousin, whether it was announced or unannounced? We don't know. Probably would have been hard to announce it as somebody in, in Mary's position. 
from town to town. We don't know. But again, the gospel writer Luke chooses to focus on some really critical things that are not about whether it's announced or not, or whether anyone's with Mary or not. Those are, these are details instead that point to the significance of what is happening. So imagine what Mary must have been feeling as she's relieved and finally hears Elizabeth's response. And she is met with not only affirmation, but confirmation that this is truly the work of God. It must have been a celebration, music to her ears. And even though Elizabeth is in a different generation, she's much older than Mary, which is why she was also an unlikely candidate to have a baby. She's also more established in life. Her stage of life is different. But these two cousins, despite those differences, they connect on a human level with the divine in them connecting as they see God in one another. They recognize what they share in common in the midst of the unconventional timing of their expanding families. They see God in each other. And so number one in your notes is when we see God in one another, each other, we recognize what we share in common so we can join God's work. We recognize what we share in common so we can join with God's work. Sorry, I might have put it on a different slide there. That's okay. I might have skipped past it. There it is. The Christian life is about recognizing God's work, is it not? And seeing that in other people. But before we move ahead, I want us to really look at the scene. And so if you have your bulletins with you, it's got the whole scene printed out there, starting in verse 39, or you can read it on the screen behind me. But let's look at these first two verses. It says, oops, I better find the right one. Okay, I'll just read it off the screen. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greets Elizabeth. So the first thing she does after seeing Gabriel is she is in a rush. She hurries to Elizabeth's home in a totally different town than where she lives. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she claimed, blessed are you, Mary, among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Now there's three really unusual, extraordinary things to notice in those three verses. And I'll, I'll kind of highlight them here. First thing is, this baby leaps at exactly the time when this greeting is happening. So Luke makes sure that that's not only mentioned once, but later on when Elizabeth is speaking. So that's extraordinary. Number two, it says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke is letting us know that Elizabeth isn't just, you know, off the cuff saying what she believes. She is actually joining what God's Spirit is doing in and through her. She is filled so much 
that despite being indoors and not needing to use an outside voice, she uses a loud voice. That's the third thing. She uses her loud voice exclaiming these words that Mary is blessed. Not only welcome in her home, but blessed by God. And not just Mary, her child. Your child, what every, you know, person, I'm not never been pregnant, but I would imagine you would want your child to be welcomed in that situation. We don't just care about you. We care about the child you're carrying. And that child is blessed. So that's a mouthful already, but Elizabeth actually isn't done speaking yet. She says this, Why am I, Elizabeth, so favored as the mother of my Lord who should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Okay, Luke, we got it. You mentioned it twice. In verse 45, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. A couple things about this little section. In Luke's gospel, there are many people who will call Jesus Lord, especially after he's born. But this is the first time somebody calls Jesus Lord in the story of Jesus, as far as Luke is concerned. And Elizabeth is the first one to say it. She recognizes it. Isn't it interesting that her son, John, is also the first one to say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He got it from his mom, right? I don't know where his dad was, but he was probably doing church work or something. He was a pastor. So this word, this word Lord in the original language, it can mean, it can mean master, like a you know, higher person that you serve. It can also mean God in some situations. So it's significant that Elizabeth refers to this baby as my Lord. And furthermore, you think of all the people who are going to speak prophetically in the book of Luke. They all come after Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the first one. She sets the tone. She leads the way. She is the model after whom other prophetic words will be spoken, including the Magnificat by Mary, and then the prophetic words of Simeon, of Anna, of Zechariah, of John the Baptist, and eventually Jesus himself. It starts with Elizabeth. And in these verses, she confirms what Mary has heard, showing that Mary's not off her rocker, but she is trustworthy and can be believed. Despite how crazy this pregnancy might seem and how difficult it is to explain, even to her fiancé, Elizabeth believes Mary. She trusts Mary. She welcomes Mary. She blesses Mary. She extends her hospitality and her solidarity to Mary, even though Mary is from Nazareth. Mary is poor. Mary is unmarried. Mary is pregnant in a strange scenario, despite all these things. Despite her status, Mary is trustworthy. Mary is courageous. And Mary is telling the truth. She's honest. She's a person of integrity. And this last little verse here, notice there's a shift in tone when, when Elizabeth says, blessed is she, 
rather than blessed are you. That's at the end of verse 45. It's a little bit hard to, to circle it in your notes, but if you do have a pen, I would recommend just looking at those two verses, uh, 45 and 42, and just comparing how they start. 42 says, blessed is she who believed. I'm sorry. The first one is blessed are you among women, verse 42. And then now it changes perspective to blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So an easy way of saying it is, at first, Mary says, hey, Mary, look at you. Wow. And then she shifts to say, hey, people, look at Mary. Wow. Right? First, it's, Mary, I see you. This is amazing. You are blessed. And then the circle grows wider as Elizabeth says, you know what? All of you people reading this, all Israel, look at Mary. She is blessed by God in a special way. And so that's number two in your notes. When we see God in each other, we practice solidarity and extend blessing during life's threshold moments. It was not only the, the literal threshold where this scene takes place as Mary enters the home and gives her greeting. It's, it mentions the, the entrance or the threshold of the home, but it's also, more importantly, the beginning of a whole new work of God, the threshold of Jesus's life on earth. And if you're wondering what solidarity is, it's not easy to define, but I found a definition that I like. It says, solidarity is when your struggle is my struggle because your freedom is our freedom. I'll say it again. It's when your struggle becomes my struggle because your freedom means all of our freedom. And it's about recognizing all that we have and recognizing that we have a shared responsibility to one another. It's more than just saying, I see you as an individual. It's about saying, let's do this together. I'm with you. I am for you. This is about all of us because we're interconnected. That's solidarity. And so to extend the blessing at the threshold is really just showing up. Showing up in those moments that matter most. Being a blessing and extending it in those threshold moments. Now, speaking of moments that matter and showing up when it matters, can you think of a time when you saw someone, met someone, encountered someone, reconnected with them, and you felt like singing for joy? Do you ever have a moment where you actually felt like singing for joy because of something that was happening to you? Maybe you actually did sing, I don't know. Or you just felt like, if I was going to sing for joy, this would be the moment. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a moment at the baggage claim where you're searching for that relative who you're picking up. You haven't seen them in what seems like forever. And amidst the crowd, they're nowhere to be found until you spot them picking up that suitcase off the carousel and you call out their name and your eyes meet and all of a sudden it's a reunion it's a connection. It's humanity meeting humanity. Or maybe it's when you're picking up your kid from 
preschool or daycare, and your kid finally sees you, and extends their arms and runs toward you, and so you just grab them and say those words that are tailored just for that particular child or grandchild. Maybe it's when you're watching a really good film. This has happened to me, and. You're immersed in the story. You are right where the director wants you to be. You're tracking with the themes and the characters, and in that space, one of the characters says something that just resonates so deep within you that you get choked up, watching a screen with a story on it, and it resonates so deeply within your being because you have felt like that. You know what it's like to feel the way that person in the story feels, how they feel that way. For me, in the last month or so, this spark, I would say, has been lit in a different way. Watching the World Cup, and I'll explain what I mean. I started noticing that even when a country I have never been to scores a goal, I sometimes got emotional as I would watch. The response, and I would see what it meant to this nation. Whether they, you know, score more goals or not, that moment is a key celebration. Whether the fans are weeping with joy or weeping with sorrow, there's something about that time and situation where all of a sudden, the thousands of miles that separate my Home from their home suddenly gets shrunk to just a few feet, and we're in that moment together. And instead of all the things that make our countries different, something happens with a soccer ball, where you start to think about our common humanity and the things that we all share in common, including for some of us. A love of sports and this roller coaster ride when the game is on the line. Now, I grew up as a missionary kid. Some of you know that, and we lived in five different countries throughout my first 18 years of life. They were on three different continents, and technically four if Hawaii is a continent. I don't know; it's not really a continent, but it's sort of not North America, so four, I guess. And. There were some really hard things about it. It was not a walk in the park by any stretch. You know, the moving was really rough. The transitions, the goodbyes, the learning of new languages and cultures, the adjustment to what does this place even mean to me as someone who now lives here for a little while? Who knows how long?、Um, one of the harder things was even just answering, "Where are you from, Daniel?" And I could give so many answers, and I never knew which one quite to say. Especially if I just met that person ten seconds ago, which was usually the case. What answer do I give? Well, whatever I say, out of all these options, they're all going to come with a caveat. They're all going to have some sort of fine print that doesn't make it an easy answer anymore. And I was so jealous growing up of anyone who could answer that question without a thought. Without a second thought, without thinking about it, they could just answer it. I was like,、oh, I want that. And so, you know, I might say, well, 
you know, uh, I'm from Hawaii, but I didn't go to high school here. That was one of my shorter answers. Or I might say, uh, I went to high school in the Philippines, but I'm not actually Filipino. But in fact, I, my parents didn't actually live in the Philippines because they lived in Nepal. My siblings, uh, my parents were missionaries. I was just a boarding student in the Philippines, but my family lived in Nepal. Although I am not from Nepal, some people would think that sometimes uh, because I'm half Chinese. Not like from China, but Chinese-American. Um, although technically, when my ancestors came to Hawaii, it wasn't America yet because it was before the U.S. colonized Hawaii. So, but we're very American now. We're very American now, um, except that I grew up overseas, sort of. Uh, it's kind of complicated. Does that make sense? Did you catch all that? Are you still tracking? Where did you go? <laughs> oh, by the way, I forgot to ask. Where are you from? Oh, Pearl City. Awesome. Great. Great. <laughs> there are drawbacks to being a missionary kid. But there also are blessings. There are some tremendous things that I wouldn't trade for anything. And one of those things was experiencing firsthand what it was like to live in a country that is obsessed with soccer. When we lived in Zaire, which is now DR Congo. Or I also got to live in a country that was obsessed with hockey, Canada. And I also got to live in a country that was obsessed with cricket. Not the insect, the sport. <laughs> in Nepal, that's the number one sport. And experiencing that, learning how these sports work, learning how the countries face each other with so much on the line, that not only helped me to connect with these places where I lived, even now those experiences help me connect with places I've never lived or visited or even been to. There's something about that experience of, of moving around and seeing the different sports and cultures and being able to watch a country score a goal and say, wow, what, a, what an experience. So, like, like Mary and Elizabeth, I think the answer to why does it matter, why do I feel these feelings, I think it has something to do with our shared humanity. It has something to do with the image of God in all of us that when we see it, it changes the way we live. And recognizing what we have in common um, is kind of fun for me when the World Cup is happening, and I know it ended today, and I won't spoil it if you're curious. Um, but, you know, for example, when Argentina scores a goal, I think of my college roommate and his mom, because they are from Argentina. And so I can imagine the excitement in their family whenever they score a goal. Or when Iran scores a goal. I think of the PhD students I know who just finished their first semester at UH. And I know their names, and they know my name. Some of them, we even watched the, the Iran-USA game together. It was fun, especially for us, because we won. Um, or when it's... Cameroon. I've never been to Cameroon. But when I see Cameroon score a goal, I think about 
living for three years in a French-speaking African country that's obsessed with soccer. Soccer is king. Or when Japan scores a goal, like when they beat Germany, or when they beat Spain. These were incredible games. I thought about two of my neighbors in seminary, classmates that I had. One of them, Tomohiko, now runs his own business in Chiba. And another one of them, um, Yoshiki, he's a campus minister and just uh, had his first child last year. I think about these guys as I'm watching these strangers cheer for their soccer team. And it's important to also mention that, despite all the good feelings, uh, the World Cup is not an innocent event. Um, there is corruption. There has been well-documented cases of bribery and all kinds of ways the money is misused and directed to the people um, who have not uh, represented the event well or have even worked that hard on putting it together. And then you have the people who have worked incredibly hard building these stadiums as migrant workers from around the world and just reading about how little leverage they have about when they'll get paid, how much they'll get paid, if they'll get paid. They're so far from home. They're just building the stadium for the World Cup. And so it's important to recognize that as a sports fan, I hope that I'm not just a consumer of entertainment, although I want to be. I want to say, oh, just let me watch the game. But nowadays, I don't do that anymore. I think it's okay to think about the dark side of sports as you're watching a game. You can still, you can still cheer for the goals. I've done it. I do it all the time. You know, something amazing happens, I'm like, yay. And then like, something makes me think about you know, where the money's going, I'm like, oh. Because they're both true. They're both realities of our human experience. And so I want to be someone who thinks critically about who is benefiting from what I watch and how I'm entertained, because it really entertains me. <laughs> There's something about these moments of connection where we reflect God's image, a God who is merciful, a God who is relational, a God who is creative. And I don't think God always roots for the underdog in sports, but there is a pattern in scripture of God at least keeping an eye out for the underdogs in life after the final whistle blows and people go back to their countries. So, number three in your notes. When we see God in each other, we cultivate a holy imagination that will benefit future generations. This is our last point. We cultivate a holy imagination that will benefit future generations. And since we've already looked at why Mary sings, who she's with when she sings, where she sings, and all the things that led her to sing, maybe we should actually take a brief uh, run through of her song and see what the content of it is. I don't know if we have time. Uh, the Magnificat itself, which is also in your bulletin, um, it's got 10 verses in it. Five and five, you might think of it as the first half of five verses being focused on what God has done for Mary personally. And then those second five verses, you might think of Mary thanking and praising God, but for what God is doing communally for her people, for her community, especially for Israel. The first five verses are probably a lot more familiar than the second five verses. 
especially around Advent time, um, you might hear these words. Starting in verse 46, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's Mary, the individual. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Mary, it's totally true. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And there's our message theme right there. From generation to generation, right in the middle of the Magnificat. Then we get to the next five verses. Because if the Magnificat was just those first five, I think it'd be a little bit easier to kind of perpetuate this myth of Mary meek and mild. She's quiet, obedient, just kind of lets things happen to her. It's not actually what happens, but we could probably try to like get away with that a bit more if we just had those first five verses, um, even though the text actually doesn't say that. But we can see why it's quoted more than the second half, because here's what Mary says in the second half. Beginning in verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud from in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, no longer the individual, but the community. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised his ancestors, our ancestors. So did you know all of that was in the Magnificat? Scattering the proud, bringing down rulers, sending the rich away empty. Mary, meek and mild, where are you? Did you change topics here? Why did you, you know, give this nice song that was on the topic of personal faith, and then you changed topics, and now you're giving a nice song about social justice? Why did you change topics? What if Mary did not change topics? What if it's all one current that's consistent all the way through because it's about a relationship with God and what that means for us individually and together? Because remember, Mary's personal situation isn't great, right? She's from Nazareth. She's poor. She's unmarried. She's a female. Um, she's got this pregnancy. But at the same time, Israel's situation at the time is not great either. They're under the Roman Empire. They don't even have control of, you know, their own land. They're feeding money into this system that, you know, builds up another empire to actually keep squashing them down. And then they've got tax collectors from their own communities who are just profiting off of this poverty. Mary is in that situation where she and her people are both lowly and marginalized and downtrodden. And if you look at the whole book of Luke, this is actually a really consistent theme. So Luke isn't changing the topic either. And when Jesus starts talking this way, he's not changing the topic either. And it starts with Mary's song. This is who God is. This is what God cares about. Here's a quick list of stories and characters who are only in the gospel of Luke, in case you don't believe me. The shepherds, the blue-collar workers doing the graveyard shift when the angels come. Those shepherds are only in Luke. We sing about him every year. 
How about the Good Samaritan, this outsider who does the right thing and becomes welcome and part of God's mission? That's only in Luke. The prodigal son, somebody who wastes it all and is still welcomed back with loving arms. That's in Luke. You've got the persistent widow, also called the the unjust judge story. That's only in Luke. You've got the 10 men with leprosy. You've got Zacchaeus, the tax collector story, and how his heart and wallet are changed by Jesus. There's the widow's son who was raised from the dead, this woman who doesn't have that many options as a widow. And now her son is dying, and Jesus raises her from the dead. That's only in Luke. There's also the story of the crippled woman who is healed on the Sabbath. Wow, Jesus, messing with some boundaries there. That story is only in Luke. And of course, the Magnificat, Mary's song. We don't have to say it in Latin. We could say in Hawaiian, Mary's mele, her song. It's only in Luke. Of course, this is a theme. And so as I was learning this week, It's actually very common for groups um, throughout church history to identify with Mary's song if they're struggling for change. And the poor and oppressed have identified with Mary's song and this Magnificat for generations. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was executed by the Nazis after peacefully resisting, he eventually lost his life to that empire. This is a quote from him. He says the Magnificat is, quote, the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Bonhoeffer, unquote. Bonhoeffer says that. Wow. Because throughout history, Mary's words have become a rallying cry for those on the margins, those who are deemed lowly and outcast. The last image I want to show you is something that was created just for this series, by the artist that um, put these resources together. And it's called The Golden Cradle by Carmel Bojelin. And it's a canvas collage on handmade, reclaimed paper. And she gives a wonderful description of this, which I'm happy to send you if you want, but let me just read part of it for the sake of time. She says, The Golden Cradle expands on the imagery of Mary's golden yes to her call, meeting Elizabeth's yes to a holy birth of her own. All along, Mary and Elizabeth themselves are cradled by the guiding arms of God who moves, the guiding arms of God who moves them beyond cousins into sisterhood. Beyond cousins into sisterhood. That's what it's all about, right? Beyond strangers, but to brothers, from acquaintances to friends, from just another relative to someone you're in solidarity with. That's what the story is all about. It's about what happens when God's love is shown by the way we treat each other, the way we see each other, the way we proclaim this incredible message of hope. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this example, these two examples, 
of Elizabeth, first one to call you Lord, and Mary, this young woman of incredible integrity. We thank you for their proclamations, their preaching, their songs that pave the way for the prophets to whom they gave birth. And we thank you that we can read their words today and that they have been passed on to us. I ask that you would help us as Wellspring in this season to grow in our capacity to extend and share your love. May we grow in our capacity to be your people and not just your personal followers, but your community of faith. May we grow in what it means to walk, this, walk through this story again, a familiar story, but one that changes everything. In your name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.